You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm Chad Dundas. That's Ben Folks. We're both longtime MMA journalists, and for nearly the last 10 years, we've been meeting here every week to break down all the action in the wild, weird, and occasionally wonderful world of mixed martial arts. Ben Folks, Happy New Year. First uh, first podcast of 2022. Let's, let's have a status update. What's up with you? Well, uh, I've made some resolutions, and they, you should know about them because they're going to affect you. Okay. Yeah. No, I would love to know. All positive, I'm sure. Yeah. Resolution the first. Take no shit off of Chad Dundas. Mm. You know what? That has historically has been a huge problem for you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know what? I, I did some soul searching while we were on our, our little break over the holidays, and I was like, you know what? Fuck this guy. I'm done taking shit off of this guy. So yeah. buckle up, my friend. Might be a bumpy 2022 for you. Yeah, I I can just I know you were on a, uh, a uh, resolution that resolution the second eat more vegetables. So. Cross country. I know you were on a cross country ski adventure over the holiday, and I can just imagine you scaling uh, skiing out to the beautiful winter wonderland at the crest of the earth and seeing a a handful of stars smattered across the sky and just thinking, you know what? Fuck that guy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Fuck my longtime business partner who does all the work. <laughs> okay. See, here you go. Basically already keeps me not employed. Taking this shit. Not taking this shit. Already, this is the kind of shit that I am not taking. How about you? Did you come yeah. up with any resolutions? Oh, I just did, actually. I didn't have one, but now I do. <laughs> you know what? I don't want to hear it because I'm not taking any shit from you. Resolution the first, cut out the dead weight. <laughs> yeah, this is going to be a great podcast. You sitting here talking to yourself with your King of the Cage DVDs behind you. (laughs) I think that the world is finally ready for my solo King of the Cage deep dive podcast. You know what? I'm not saying that there's not an audience for that. (laughs) I I am Uh, saying, though, that that audience needs to reflect on their own choices in their own lives. Yeah, no, I I think that's probably right. Uh, It's 2022, everybody. You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast proper. Don't forget to go out and follow us on the grams at CME if you nasty. Like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash co-main event. This show that's tickling your eardrums right now drops every Monday afternoon for free in your timelines and podcast libraries. And if you think we're having fun right now, (laughs) brothers and sisters, you absolutely need to go check out what's going on over at the Patreon page, patreon.com slash co-main event. Ben Folks and I have been up to this point party rocking over there three additional times a week three additional podcasts will we make it through the year will we make it to our 10th anniversary it's not sounding good so far uh but if you if you like what you hear from the proper you can head over there check out the wednesday live chat check out thursdays doing the damn thing check out friday's power hour we have fun it's a great community over there again if you want to support the team patreon.com slash co-main event we have a handy tier of patronage for every budget 
We got music this week from our guy, Stockholm-based producer CMEO, a.k.a. co-main event podcast listener Alfred Larson. If you like what you hear from him on the show, you can check out more over at soundcloud.com slash CMEO. That's S-E-E-M-I-O. Ben, uh, Alfred Larson just emailed the show, maybe even today, to let us know. Uh, his music is also over there on Spotify, and he's got some that? new tracks about to drop. So if you want to check out the new stuff from Simeo, run, check him out over there at Spotify. He's over there these days as well. Yeah, of course he is. Everybody over there. Three rounds as usual this week in the co-main event podcast. In round number one, has Dana White lost his fastball? Because he keeps tossing these meatballs right over the middle of the plate, and Jake Paul just keeps jacking home runs off of him. And in round number two, Francis Ngannou fights in a couple of weeks. Is he really going to just peace out the UFC afterward? And in round number three, fun with futures. Who will be the UFC champion by the end of 2022? Let's gamble on it. All that plus are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff. But first, like we always do about this time, let's go ahead and do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. First piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Chris Harbin, who writes, So Habib apparently booked Kevin Lee to fight against Diego Sanchez at 165 pounds in Eagle FC. Ben, this sentence is is a sentence that would not make sense eight months ago. Isn't that consistently true of MMA, though? Yeah. Where it it doesn't seem like by the time we get to the end of every year, you could go back and show yourself something in January from the world of MMA, which just would have sounded like fucking gobbledygook. Just gibberish. Yeah. But here we are. Uh, Chris Harbin goes on. I was shocked to read this exclamation point. Really, Chris? Were you shocked? Well, I'm impressed that you still have retain the ability to be shocked. Kevin Lee, who is 29 years old, has lost four of his last five fights against the upper end of the lightweight and welterweight divisions. He should walk through 39-year-old Diego. Does anyone feel they even need to see this fight? Whoever is the matchmaker at Eagle FC, I got some ideas, uh, should be ashamed of themselves. Other matches I have seen made in EFC are more along the lines of elder statesmen of the sport versus elder statesmen. This fight is one that might not be sanctioned by athletic commissions outside of Florida and maybe Texas in my opinion i hope this kind of matchmaking isn't common for the new promotion ben now you'll recall that the last time we heard from diego sanchez he had spent a minimum of 27 days in the hospital yeah fighting uh covid he had pneumonia recently pretty recently got pneumonia from his covid now here he is he's scheduled to fight kevin lee on i believe march 11th and he is out here on the Twitter machine. People people are rolling up and uh, asking questions of concern to Diego Sanchez. Like, how's your health? How you feeling? What's, yeah. what's the outlook? And Diego Sanchez is replying, healthier than I have ever been. So, uh, quick turnaround. Mm-hmm. From, yeah, no, he's good. He's good to go, according to uh, Diego Sanchez. He went from being pretty seriously sick to not only being as healthy as he'd been before the illness, but healthier mm-hmm. very quickly. Yeah. So that's good for him. Glad to hear he's made not only a full recovery, but like whatever the next step beyond a full recovery is where you end up better. Um, okay. Two things. One is 
are we really going to look at ELFC and be like, well, we thought you were better than this? Because first thing, we haven't had a whole lot of opportunity to even form an opinion about ELFC, I feel. But also, isn't the most recent thing we were saying about it when we were talking about how they just booked Bigfoot Silva to face Tyron Spong and then Bigfoot got axed out of the fight without ever knowing why, it seemed, according to him, when he had plans to travel to Germany to get his training in and then found out, like, oh, he's out, uh, and who Sergei Karatanov or somebody was in. And it, that's a fight where I think you could look at it and be like, you might have sanctioning problems if you were trying to do this anywhere where a sanctioning body was actually doing its work. Lucky, yeah. lucky for you, you chose Florida. And so you turn around and do something like this. It's not exactly a huge departure from that. But also, number two, doesn't seem like in MMA we always give a little bit of a pass to any organization not named the UFC because we realize they have such a struggle to even get a portion of our attention. Yeah. And there are so few people to choose from who will do that, who are known enough and are not signed to the UFC and are, are not signed anywhere else that are free agents that you can get to who we've heard of to give you a little bit of our attention, at least make a headline out of it. And it seems like we have given those people a pass because we know that that challenge exists. And so when they come up with something like this, even if a lot of us go, mm, I'll know about this one, man, this one seems perhaps detrimental to somebody's health. We also kind of go, but I get what you're thinking, which is that you need to purchase some of our attention and there are only so many ways to do it. Yeah. Uh, you and I, for a long time now, sitting in these chairs, talking on these very mics, have prothelicized and argued for the inclusion of the 165, for the creation of the 165. We have waited like giddy schoolboys for some genius visionary to come along in this sport and create the 165, the 165-pound division. And so the fact that Eagle FC went and did it was exciting yeah. for us. But I got to say, if this is the first booking that we find out about in the new 165, it gives me a little bit of pause, especially when aside from the creation of the 165, the first three things that we have found out about Eagle FC, except that the logo looks like something you could smack on the side of a high school football helmet and you would be in business, are number one, that the first main event, main event that they booked, as you said, was Bigfoot Silva against Tyrone Spong, which should give you some pause. That number two, we're trying to do uh, Kevin Lee versus Diego Sanchez. And number three, that uh, Habib Nurmagomedov is out here kind of poo-pooing the idea of uh, women fighting in mixed martial arts and that they won't be having that in Eagle FC. Now, you, a couple weeks ago on our show, provided the best explanation for why that might be true. Uh, Habib Nurmagomedov did not take that explanation, used a different one, slightly different one. Well, I that, provided uh, one explanation that he could have gone with, but I think he was actually being sincere in that he just doesn't, he, he would rather see women at home in all yeah. regards. So all of those things are troubling regarding Eagle FC. And I'm kind of with Chris Harbin, man. I don't even know. Like, I can't even find a, a place in my mind where it seems fun to watch Kevin Lee versus Diego Sanchez like that above and beyond any other moral concern that we might have. Like, this is just going to be depressing and yeah. terrible to watch. And see, that's the thing that you need to learn in some of these circumstances from some other promotions. I, I don't even say some of like 
not only some of what we've seen from Japanese fight promotions over the years, but even some of what we've seen from the thrillers at t- from time to time, where it's fine to look at, to try to put together a matchup where you're asking, how can we have some fun? But let's yeah. not be foolish. Let's have some fun, but let's not be stupid about it. Because you're right that if somebody who understands who Kevin Lee and Diego Sanchez are is looking to add another fight promotion to their rotation of fights that they're going to watch, they're going to sit down and think about this one and go, do I really want to put myself through it? And I could absolutely not blame anybody who decides, you know what? Nope. I'm going to basically wait and see if I get an all clear via social media. See if somebody can just tell me, hey, it happened and nothing, nothing awful went down. And then maybe I'll go back retrospectively and check it out. But do I really want to sit there and let whatever may unfold flood into my brain to stay there forever? Maybe not. Maybe I don't. Be fun, not foolish. I heard that was your actual 2022 New Year's resolution. It's it's on the list. It's down. It's under vegetables. Next question this week comes to us from Alex Penny, who writes, while watching the UFC's 2021 year in review Facebook video, I was reminded that the UFC held two events on ABC this year. Feels like those events never even happened. Am I right? Any ideas why ABC didn't host more UFC events? Do you think the UFC will be back on ABC in 2022? This is a damn good point from Alex Penny, because I had also completely forgotten that we did a couple events over on uh, the network, ABC network this year. Uh, I remember, I think, in the original UFC ESPN deal that that they were guaranteed some slots on ABC. Now, whether or not that, that keeps up in 2022, I don't know. But Ben, I think the larger point is that it kind of feels like the UFC in general, and this isn't even unique to the ESPN deal. This this felt like it went back even into the life of the Fox deal. It feels like they've kind of given up on the idea of network television being a big deal for them. Yeah. Now, it was a big deal in MMA, obviously, when Strikeforce got there, when when Elite XE did some some network events. Back in those days, it felt very much like MMA being on network television sort of meant that it had arrived in the mainstream and right. that it was a, a thing that needed to be respected and considered alongside some of these other mainstream sports. The UFC at this point has solidified its position as sort of the mainstream juggernaut of MMA to the point that I don't even think they need to worry about that particular feather in their cap anymore being over there on network television. But it does feel a little bit weird that for a long time now, these network television shows, which arguably could reach the biggest audiences and could be some kind of promotional chip for you, even if you are the UFC, it it feels odd that these particular events feel like such afterthoughts these days. Yeah, well, don't you remember that one of the things that we observed happening over time from the Fox deal was what the UFC was willing to put on those fight cards. And I think you see basically the same thing with what you've seen on the UFC on ABC events. Like the first one, you had the the Max Holloway, Calvin Cutter fight, which, you know, maybe... I could see how some people in the decision-making capacity with regards to this deal looked at that one in which Calvin Cutter took like a record-breaking number of blows to the head, which Dana White was standing there in the cage afterwards being like, get him directly to the hospital when he comes out of the cage. Maybe some people looked at that one and were like, okay, hmm, this was on like a, 
like a Saturday afternoon uh, kind of thing on the, uh, ABC. Maybe we don't want to do a ton of that. But also then the next one, it was uh, Marvin Vittori and Kevin Holland, right? Like if you go back, I'm going to pull up this card just so I can remind you of what was actually happening on that one. Because this is in April, which April 2021, which feels like roughly five years ago. But, you know, the the main card, Marvin Vittori versus Kevin Holland, Arnold Allen versus Sadiq Youssef, Julian Marquez versus Sam Alvey, Mackenzie Dern versus Nina Nunez, uh, Daniel Rodriguez versus Mike Perry. Like not really even trying to knock it out of the park with star power. Right. Like, that feels like the UFC just doing like, okay, this is the same kind of shit we'd roll out for a cable TV fight night event. We're not seeing this as our attempt to break into a next level of exposure. Right. And so if the UFC is not going to see it that way, then why should the broadcast partners see it that way? Plus, if you are, you know, Disney and the ESPN, you see the value of your deal with the UFC, I'm sure, as, for one thing, they help fill out the library of content on ESPN+, Plus, but also they bring a really loyal audience that will sign up for whatever streaming service they're on. And when you started a new streaming service, you needed subscribers, and the UFC is a really good property for something like that because, look, look at us. We followed this shit all over the place, man. We followed it to Versus. You know, we, we followed it to channels we'd never heard of before. They go, wait, we're on this new streaming platform. A bunch of fans are going to be like, all right, I guess I got to sign up for that because that's where the stuff is. And that's the value to, to ESPN, I would think. More so than, you know, it's not like we need help filling out the network TV sports calendar. Yeah. Uh, next question this week comes to us from Tom Hughes, who writes, I was browsing YouTube and saw a video from the UFC pop up on my video feed called Fights You Forgot in 2021. I feel like, quote, because of our relentless schedule should have been added to it. I can't believe I'm saying this, but any chance we could have fewer UFC fight cards this year? No. Uh, no, no chance. Because, again, that's how the UFC makes its money now. We are fully into a quantity over quality situation where the UFC gets its licensing money from ESPN for providing it a certain number of events each year. I believe that number is 42. And uh, so there's no chance that we will get less than that. And they will fully stock those with, with fights. They will create the content hours. They will bolster the library and all this other stuff that they need to do to make that money. And it really signals that, that we have long past at this point, not just recently, but sort of long past the point where the UFC is kind of in the book and cool fights business and is now more in the content creation business in providing this service for ESPN plus. Now that's the downside. The upside is as you and I, you and I talked about more recently this year, it kind of figures out, it kind of feels like they have figured out a more workable workflow, let's say for these events that we're just going to stack the pay-per-views as much as possible, which again, makes financial sense for them, but I think makes expectational sense for us as the viewer. Yeah. And then the fight night events, there's going to be some good fights on there, but it's going to be more of a like, hey man, check in on Saturday night if you ain't got shit to do kind of a vibe, which for a lot of uh, hardcore MMA fans, maybe us included, is just fine. Yeah. Like, that's nothing I, wrong with that, frankly. I honestly vastly prefer the way they've been doing it that way because it, it just... It, it works for my personal schedule more. I can plan to be around for a big pay-per-view once a month and, and kind of clear my schedule a little bit to sit down and watch it when you have something. When I can be 
pretty well assured that you're going to pack those pay-per-views with premium content, like people, like fights that really matter, people I know and people I really want to see fight. The fight night events, it seems like your your schedule is already to throw a whole bunch of them out there. And, you know, I'll rather than sit through all of the filler and everything that goes along with those, I'll check in on those to see the actual good fights I hear about afterwards. And that, that works just fine for me. I also, uh, our guy, Mike Bond, Mike Bad to the Bone over there on Twitter, he pointed out that the UFC hit a new single year high for cage time this year. And some of this is just that, uh, you know, some fights go to decision, some fights end quickly, but he points out, he lays it all out here with lists where from 2013 to 2021, the total number of fights and the total cage time. Uh, 2021, 509 total fights, uh, a little over 96 hours in total cage time. They've had years where they had slightly, or they've had at least one year where they had more fights. 2019 had 516 fights. I mean, you think just about the fights we lost due to COVID positives the week of, or sometimes the day before, sometimes the day of, and that probably accounts for the difference there. Probably would have had more fights this year than ever before if that had not been the case. But that is definitely the trend because the UFC has figured out like that's the business model that makes the most sense for them. They, they, the, the talent is working pretty cheap. Content generation is the name of the game for a whole bunch of sports organizations and media companies right now. And this is how the UFC gets it done. And yet also, like it does make you, you sit there and think about how... And this is, doesn't even count the, like as, as he notes, the non-fight broadcast time. If you actually sit there and think about how much time you would spend in front of the screen uh, for UFC events, when you add in all the other stuff that they make you sit through if you're watching it live, it might make you reflect on how your life is slipping away, how you got one precious life, and this is it. Yeah. Uh, bad to the bone out there doing the Lord's work. Yeah. Adding up, adding up all the fight time to throw that up there whenever he does New Year's Eve, New Year's Day as an annual event. Uh, just just to make us all uh, take take stock of our lives, Re, <laughs> restock our lives as we as we head into the new year here. Uh, you know what? We sit here right now on like an unprecedented break between UFC events, you know, at least in recent memory, because we're not getting another UFC event until I believe January 15th. And yeah. it's already been what a week or two since we had the last one. So this is like a a uh, it's the longest dead zone in quite some time between UFC events. And it's amazing how, you know, despite the fact that over the years we have, I think, justifiably criticized the UFC for some of its programming decisions. Uh, although now, as we said, I kind of admit that it feels like they have figured it out, figured out a workable way to do all this stuff. Uh, it feels odd. It's a, it's amazing how accustomed to that schedule we become. Mm -hmm. And then when you have three, four weeks off, you, you kind of, at times you're sitting around, uh, you're refreshing the Wikipedia page. Like, could this be right? Could this, <laughs> could there really be no UFC until the 15th? Like what are, what's everybody doing with themselves for this time? But especially when you have something coming up later this month, like a big heavyweight title fight, it's not the worst yeah. thing in the world to give yourself a chance to build a little anticipation and uh, a little bit of a reset to kind of tell those stories over again to get people excited. Yeah, if only they were going to use that time to really try to get their marketable heavyweight champion over. We might, the, uh, we might end up we, talking about that later. 
with the fight buying public. All right, last question this week comes to us from Pissed Off Lawyer. Okay. Our guy over there on Twitter, he writes, I was just rummaging through a t-shirt drawer and found Alexander Gustafson's UFC 192 shirt. It got me thinking about his place in MMA history. He came so close to winning the UFC belt on two occasions and for some of the best to ever do it and from some of the best to ever do it in Jones and Cormier. He beat Shogun when Shogun was not all that far removed from his legendary pride run and his time as UFC champion. The Swede also has dominant wins over Tashira and Blagovitz, who both went on to hold UFC gold. I know he is still technically an active fighter, but let's say his career ended today. Where would Gustafsson rank among light heavyweights all time and how do you think he would be remembered uh oh i'm glad he pointed out that that gustafson is still an active fighter here however don't you feel like it is not i hope this doesn't sound terrible but i don't feel like it's unfair at this point to say how will we remember alexander gustafson because it does kind of feel like we have seen the bulk of his work up to this point yeah, like it doesn't seem like he's going to rocket up the rankings and be in any more title fights in the UFC anytime soon. You and you know what? Like you, you, he's damn good, I think, is the verdict, right? Like, he, you know, he just happened to come along. And when you're a light heavyweight, most of the history of the light heavyweight division at this point has been dominated by either John Jones or Daniel Cormier. Yeah. Uh, and so, like, you just you, you were a tough size. You were in a tough decision division, and you had – two of the greatest to ever do it kind of standing in line in front of you. And that happens to some people, man. And it's, it's, it's rough stuff, but, uh, but I guess that's how it goes sometimes. And I don't, it's not a knock on Alexander Gustafson, who I think we will remember as, as the guy who first came along and gave John Jones his toughest fight to date at that point. And a guy who might well have been champion, if not for a couple of all time, Hall of Famers sitting in the front row in front of him. Yeah. You know who I think about when I think about Alexander Gustafson in that context? I think about Nelson Algren. Okay. <laughs> yeah, obviously, like you would. Yeah. Nelson Algren, a fiction writer, Chicago guy, wrote a lot of great fight fiction, in fact, uh, but was writing his fiction, and it was, I don't want to typify it as like guy fiction or whatever, but, you know, it was writing his fiction about boxers and criminals and fighter pilots and, you know, cool shit like that. And he was doing it at a time when the two big fiction heavyweights kind of in that same genre class were Ernest Hemingway and John Steinbeck. Uh, you could also probably add William Faulkner in there and say if you want. But it's like, man, if you come along at a different period where those guys aren't taking up so much oxygen in the room, maybe a lot more people take notice of you. Instead, it's kind of the the real heads who know who Nelson Algren is at this point and appreciate his work. And the people who know him really like his stuff, really appreciate it. Uh, but a lot of people just don't know him because the the names that occupied that period were just so gigantic that the, they didn't pay attention to a whole lot else, especially looking back now. And you know what? That happens sometimes. It's not the worst thing that could happen, though, because the people who know know how good you were in your time. And like that that first Alexander Gustafson John Jones fight, the, the one he had with Daniel Cormier, I mean, that guy could straight up fucking fight. Yeah. And it didn't last forever for him, doesn't last forever for anybody, but you're right under different circumstances he wears a UFC belt and and it's I think sometimes we make too much of that when we're looking back trying to decide, you know, whether you had a great career or merely a very good one. All right, I'm going to Stephen A. Smith you now. However, postscript, 
Alexander Gustafson did not fight at all this year. He was scheduled to fight in December, or I'm sorry, September against Paul Craig. Uh, that would have been his return to light heavyweight after he only fought uh, one time in 2020. That was when he moved up to make his heavyweight debut in what was kind of a disaster for him against Fabricio Verdum. Uh, Alexander Gustafson has a lot of miles on the tires, but he's mm-hmm. only 34 years old. Does this knowledge that he was he was trying to come back down to light heavyweight uh, to fight Paul Craig in September, but had to withdraw due to injury? Does that make you reconsider it all? Does that make you feel like did we did this whole discussion that we just had pull the plug on Alexander Gustafson a little bit early? Because as everybody knows, and as pissed off lawyer notes here, uh, it's a new world down there at 205 with your champion, the likable Glover Tashira, and the former champion now, the likable Jan Blagovitz, does a 34-year-old Alexander Gustafson, who was probably sitting at home and got a text from his friend that said, hey man, I don't know if you know this, but Glover Tashira is the UFC light heavyweight champion now, and Alexander Gustafson said, oh word, and dropped the <laughs> ice cream bar that he was eating and immediately decided to head back down to 205. Uh, are are the prospects now suddenly at at 205 much much rosier for Gustafson is this the situation he's been waiting for all along first of all there's no way he's only 34 check the math on that i don't that can't be right i, I think uh he I refuse to his own it. wikipedia page i think we're go- i think alexander gustafson goes in there every 3 months and lowers his age by a year there's no way well, in fairness, he is about to turn 35. January well, okay. 15th is the Mahler's birthday. Okay. I mean, sure. It's possible that we're dealing with a new world at 205. You get a couple good wins and who knows. But also, uh, it's possible that those instances of having to pull out of due to injury don't become any less common as you edge into your mid-30s. So... Who knows? I, I, it's possible that we are having this discussion like it's a goddamn in memoriam segment or something when it's when he's still got life left in him. Who knows? I'm, I'm, we've been surprised in that regard before and by this sport, so I can't rule it out. I'm just saying, if like the 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 question was based on the premise, let's say his career ended today. True. True. That's what this question presupposes, and so that's what I'm that's what I'm operating on. Fair enough. Maybe 2022 is Alex Alexander Gustafson's year. That's all I'm. He's got on his list says take less shit from Chad Dundas to get back in that light heavyweight title picture. Win that UFC light heavyweight title. All right, that's going to do it for for listener mail. If you've got questions, comments, or concerns that you would like to air to this podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. You go to our website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says, email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. Right now, though, we are going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Ben, it's remarkable to me that you and I have both lived long enough in this sport to see Dana White transition from being the young maverick fight promoter who was changing all the rules and taking over the game 
to now a guy who in many ways feels like kind of a dinosaur. A guy who has been out here repeating the same answers to all the questions for seemingly a decade. A guy who seems to have not altered his personal tastes or the way he thinks about this sport or any other sport for just as long. A guy who denied the pandemic. A guy who who went all in for Donald Trump during the, those four years. And at this point, a guy who at one point felt like he was he was fighting against the Bob Arums of the world and now kind of feels more in keeping with with the Bob Arums of the world kind of seems like a peer of theirs. And I say all this just as as way of introduction that Dana White is continually getting dunked on by Jake Paul at this point in a way that I don't know that we've seen him dunked on ever, maybe in in like the the history of his many many internet feuds and it it kind of illustrates to me or underscores to me like hey man this guy used to be the cutting edge now he is out here kind of getting taken to the cleaners by a younger more agile more web adept more social media adept dude in Jake Paul and it's a little bit jarring to see this happen don't you think it is, although maybe it's sort of just the inevitable process of time. Because here's what I don't understand. You, you know how Dana White has that room where he'll do those interviews from where it says the art of war on the wall in gigantic ass letters? Yeah, that's his office, I believe. <laughs> and you know how once we saw a clip where it was passed around Twitter, he's on somebody's show from that room and they get all excited because they're like, oh, the art of war. I love that book. Have you read that book? And he's like, no. I haven't read that book. It just, you know, just got it up on the wall. Doesn't read books. He's told us that before. And they were kind of disappointed. They think, they think they even had a copy of the book, like right there. Like, oh, they were ready to talk about it. They thought they'd found a friend. Turns out, no, he hasn't read it. If he had read it, Chad, I think maybe he would have learned that you don't want to let your enemy pick the battleground. And you don't want to just march on to the terrain that he would like to fight on. Because that's exactly what he did here with this Jake Paul situation. I wrote a little something about it for the co-main event website, but Jake Paul, as we've seen in his boxing career, the thing he seems to do best is pick on the right targets, is choose his opponents very wisely and carefully without exactly seeming to do that. And he's done it here again with Dana White because he basically baits Dana White in this. He's trying to fight Jorge Masvidal, right? And he's offering Jorge Masvidal his money. And Jorge, his response is basically, the UFC won't let me go for that amount of money. Like... In order for me to go fight you, the UFC would have to get a bigger taste than that. And so then Jake Paul gets into it with Dana White, who's like, oh, you know, you keep trying to fight my guys because you can't draw on, on your own. And Jake Paul takes it to fucking notes, Chad. Took mm-hmm. it to notes and laid out his list of demands to Dana White. And cleverly, all his demands are for the UFC fighters as a whole. Like fighter pay, fighter treatment, uh, raise the minimum UFC pay, give them long-term health coverage, let them share in the revenue along the same lines as other major pro sports, smartly making it not about him, but about those people. And then saying, hey, if you do all this stuff, which I know you're not going to do, I'll I'll retire from boxing and I'll sign with the UFC right away. The part where Dana White really fucks up here (laughs) is he goes, I know what I'll do. I'll make a video. I'll make a video for social media where I talk shit on this guy. Dude, that's his entire thing. You, you're just like, 
Oh man, Jaws is out there fucking people up. I know what I'll do. I'll put on my floaties, pull on the swim trunks, and I'll swim out there to get him. And goddamn it, you just ended up right where he wanted you. The, yeah. It's the worst thing you could do there because Dana White's video is so like FaceTiming with your dad, right? Like he's holding the phone too close to his face. He has clearly hasn't thought about what he's going to say beforehand. It's just kind of a rambling thing that doesn't address any of the stuff that Jake Paul actually brought up about fighter pay and fighter treatment in the UFC. At one point, he wants to try to talk shit on Jake Paul's manager and give him a fun little nickname, like 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 he's Donald Trump. Like, oh, this guy, the warlock. And what is he going to do to tell you about that guy? He's going to describe him to you. Let me describe to you this guy that you may have seen over Jake Paul's shoulder in some of the stare downs so I can make fun of him. And then when Jake Paul answers back, he's like, oh, yeah, see, I actually did some video editing. When I want to talk about somebody, I provide a picture in the video because you can do that. It's really not even that hard. When I want to make a point, I provide some screenshots. When I want to make you look like an idiot, I Photoshop you to make you look like an idiot. Uh, If I want to make you say something over and over again, I clip your video and make it look like you're saying the thing. Even add a little, like, cocaine streak under your nose to make it look like you're saying the exact opposite of what you're saying. Like, he's showing you that this is how you do that stuff. Because this is what he has done. This is how he has gotten to be, like, such a a prominent figure in our culture and in our world. And he's just got Dana White to take this bait. And now he picks on Dana White, and it's the perfect target for him. Because he can be as fucking mean and unfair as he wants to to Dana White. And who's going to feel sympathy for the incredibly wealthy fight promoter? And it's, like, the, the guy, Dana White's old enough and out of touch enough with that world that it's not like he's going to come back and suddenly have it all figured out. And he's also reached that level of wealth and fame and success where there's not anybody around him telling you, you're getting your ass handed to you here, man. Let us help you out with it or stop it altogether. Like nobody is telling him what to do there. He's sure that he's whatever move he makes is right by virtue of him making it. And so there's nobody who can like help him course correct here. <laughs> Jake Paul's just sits there and he's like, I'm not going to stop. Like, I'm going to keep doing this to you, confident that Dana White can't resist firing back and just making it worse. And he's probably right about that. But again, part of that is that, like, that's just the Dana White response, right? Like, that video is the video Dana White makes, regardless of who it is, who has drawn his ire at that moment. And maybe, like, five, ten years ago, that video would have been good enough. Like, he would have put that video out and all the little sycophants on the internet would have run to reply and been like, you demand, Dana, give me a job, Dana, UFC number one, Dana. And and he has failed to adjust. He has failed to grow or evolve. And now, like you said, it's like your dad making that video. It's like you're throwing the alley-oop up there for Jake Paul to grab the ball and dunk it. And it's just like Dana White doesn't recognize that. Like he still thinks that the thing he's been doing for the last decade is good enough. And like in this instance, in this battle, it's kind of not. Yeah. And it also helps, I guess, if you're Jake Paul, which like you said, it was, it was a smart, a clever decision to kind of take the argument and not make it about him to make it about these, uh, long suffering UFC fighters. And when he's talking about that stuff, at least it helps that the truth is on his side. Like he kind of has all of these points that he can make about how the UFC has long treated all of its fighters. And Dana White can't really say shit about it because he's right. Right. It does. He's got a point. A lot of these comments that he's making, these points that Jake Paul is making, it's like, he's been reading, uh, like John Nash articles on bloody elbow for the last two years. And, 
knows exactly all these points to hit. But he's also, the other talent it seems like Jake Paul has and has used in all facets of his career is he knows who to pick on and how. He knows how to push those buttons on people. He did it to us as MMA fans and MMA media with his entire boxing career where he knew, let me fight this guy and go about it this way and you guys will get pissed off about it, but you guys are easily pissed off in general when it comes to this stuff and it will translate into interest that you guys, you're already used to paying for pay-per-views and paying for this content. You'll follow me over there because I have made you so worked up about it that you want to see me get beat up or you at least don't want to see me knock out these old UFC fighters I'm picking on. And so here you come and now you're a part of my audience. And he was very smart about that. It worked to a large extent. And now he's doing it to Dana White where he can be like, okay, this guy can't resist taking the bait. He can't not fire back when I fire at him. And yet he's also not that great at how this stuff works now. He, he's like you said, I mean, he's making these like he's still doing the Dana White video blogs and he's yelling at Loretta Hunt and it's 2009. It's exactly the same thing where he's just getting mad and yelling at the camera. And Jake Paul comes back with a fucking multimedia presentation. <laughs> screenshots and photoshops at one point adding a voiceover to point out what he thinks is a ufo over his shoulder just shit like that and you're like man you are in over your head in this kind of a fight you just you're not prepared for this kind of thing and he knows it and that's why he has drawn you into exactly this kind of battle and the thing that he said that i thought he was most right about was he was like you are fucking with somebody here who doesn't need you. Everybody else you're used to dealing with, they kind of need you to some extent. The managers can't get too heavy-handed about pushing back on Dana White in the UFC because we've seen how the UFC has those abilities to, to fuck with the managers. Fighters can't do it because the UFC has them under contract and will fuck with them. Media people don't want to do it because the UFC will definitely fuck with them too. You can't fuck with Jake Paul if you're Dana White. He's pulling a portion of your audience away or at least like pulling them with him and he's doing it without ever having to be in the UFC and accept those contract terms. And he and he's doing it effectively. And you, especially in response to this most recent one, what I saw at least on Twitter afterwards was a lot of people saying like, God damn it, am I going to have to root for Jake Paul in this situation? Like he's making, he's winning me over and I hate it. It's like the, that's the repeated refrain that I heard from people in response to it. And it's like, that's, that is his ideal situation here. And he's got it. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And then we will move on to uh, round number two. Ben, what is your Are You Fucking Kidding Me this week? Well, Chad, I'm going to read to you a headline. This mentions Bloody Elbow. I'm also reading Bloody Elbow articles. Here's one. Scott Coker, Fedor Emelianenko, wants rematch with Ryan Bader for a retirement fight. Are you fucking kidding me, you guys? This, No. Mm -mm. You know what? I'm putting my foot down on this one, Chad. I'm going to quote from from Scott Coker. That's what Fedor asked me. He's like, if Ryan beats Moldovsky, I want to fight Ryan Bader. That's what he said. I said, well, let's just talk about it. I'll give you some other possibilities in the beginning of January. And let's see how the fight unwinds. And we'll make a business decision, Fedor. How about that? And he said, okay. And that was it. Mm -mm. You know what? No. You are not... You are not going to sell me a fucking Fedor-Ryan Bader rematch and bill it as Fedor's retirement fight. He's going to ride off into the sunset with a rematch with Ryan Bader. There's all these like other peers who Fedor could be fighting. 
people from his era, his time period, go get one of them, man. Let's do something fun. If this is supposedly going to be Fedor's last fight, don't have him go out there and get beat up by Ryan Bader. You fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me? I agree with you, man. Like, and the last time we heard about Fedor really wanting to fight with somebody was Tim Johnson. So, Fedor's out here, uh, let's say, selecting different targets than we might select for him. Just, I, I, I hate to be heavy-handed about it, but I'm afraid I'm going to have to give this one a firm no, you guys. <laughs> That's a I'm no sorry. from me. I've made my decision, close. and it is final. Ben, I'm going to read a headline off Bloody Elbow. Also, okay. for my Are You Fucking Kidding Me? This is from Carolyn Lee Adams over there at Bloody Elbow. Hicks and Gracie expands on infidelity secrets done to, quote, create a clan of fighters. Okay. This is Hicks and Gracie on a Portuguese language podcast talking about. I think this the, is with Jeremy Cruz, right? Is this him talking to Jeremy Cruz? Is that is that right? That could that could well be. Yeah, uh, he is. Yeah, it is. He's talking to Jeremy Cruz from MMA Fighting. He's talking about the, uh, essentially the foundational history of the Gracie family, where essentially the Gracie forefathers are sitting around and like you do, like you like you do. They, they say, hey, uh, you know what we ought to do is create a clan of super martial arts experts. Yeah. Which I feel like, number one, are you fucking kidding me? How did I miss the boat on this? How have I never sat down and thought to myself, time to create a clan of super martial arts experts, surround yeah. myself with them. And number two, clearly the obvious uh, point to jump to at that at that standpoint is it's going to require us to have sex with a lot of different women right number step number one decide to uh, decide to create an army of martial arts experts and number two obviously to get that done you got to have sex with a lot of different women that's what the gracies decided you personally me? personally i hate when my plan requires me to do something that I wanted to do anyway. That's just the worst. <laughs> yeah. And so yet it happens Hickson's, all the time. Hickson's got these quotes in there. Hickson Gracie grows up until he's 16 years old thinking that uh, uh, Margarita Gracie, who was Helio Gracie's wife, is his mom. And then he says, uh, I think that's the truth that had to be so told at some point. I didn't know the reality when I was born. I always saw uh, Margarita as my mother completely and didn't see it any other way. I believed that until I was 16. After I started connecting the dots and started to make things, things started to make more sense. I really understood that my real mother was a nanny that my father had for a long time. With Margarita's agreement, they had a scheme and they had three kids. Also, this article goes on to reference that there was another woman who worked at one of the Gracie family academies who uh, mothered several children with uh, with Helio Gracie. And, and I guess I feel kind of dumb that I would that I didn't know or guess this to begin with, you know, back in the day when you get an MMA and it turns out there's just a million Gracies. Maybe I feel like I should have known something was up, but this is <laughs> this is news to me. And all I got to say is, are you fucking kidding me? created an army of martial art expert children by having sex with a bunch of different women outside your marriage. You fucking kidding me, dude. And yet, I mean, you want to open all these academies 
Chad? You want to have? I mean, it's a business. Have a Gracie decision. in every academy. Yeah, it's just, more than anything else. I sat down with Margarita. I ran the numbers. We talked about the future of the brand. Yeah, the brand extension, you might say. And we decided the only way to do it is for me to have sex with a bunch of different people outside my marriage. That's it. That's that's all there is. It's the only way. Imagine him, you know, just sort of like coming to the the hard, cold reality of it, heaving a sigh, shaking his head, and saying, "Well, looks like this is the only way." Fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding. That's gonna do it for round number one. We'll be right back for round number two. So, Chad, January 22nd, the year of our Lord, 2022. The biggest of all homies, Francis Ngannou, going to go in there, put his actual UFC heavyweight title on the line against interim UFC heavyweight champ Cyril Gaon, a uh, uh, fella he knows, fella he spent some time with in the gym. And his future in the UFC seems like it could be determined largely based on whether he wins or loses in a way that is totally bizarre and uh, also makes you wonder... How much we're all just saying some shit about whether we want Francis Ngannou in the UFC to continue or whether we're, you know, are we negotiating here or are we actually telling how we really feel about it? Dana White came out before and said, hey, if Francis Ngannou didn't want to be here, we, we want you if you want to be here. But if not, that's cool, too. A real departure from how the UFC has viewed former champions in the past. But then came back and said, happened to run into Francis Ngannou at dinner. They had they sat down, they had a talk, and he thinks maybe they've smoothed things over. Which I mean, again, it's just another one of those scenarios where you're just imagining the the GM in difficult negotiations with the the star quarterback, uh, going back and forth with the guy's agent, can't get a deal done. You run into him at dinner and be like, well, How about you and I just talk about it? Without without, you know, your representative getting in the way. And now feel like maybe maybe things are off to a better start. What do you say? What do you think is actually going on here? Do you think that Francis Ngannou is going to continue to be in the UFC? Or do you think that Francis Ngannou, one way or another, whether it's now or whether it's as soon as he can get free of the UFC contract if he wins this next fight, that he is looking at going off to greener pastures, what he imagines to be greener pastures in in boxing or some other aspect of combat sports? It's the biggest question of 2022, right? As we sit here today, the biggest question... If of 2022, as it pertains to the UFC, might be the future of Francis Ngannou and what he decides to do. Uh, and the two scenarios, as you mentioned, are a little bit strange. Like if Francis Ngannou loses to Cyril Gaon at UFC 270, we have reason to believe that he can just leave the company at that moment because this will be the last fight on his contract. If he wins, then the UFC's champions clause automatically extends him for at least one fight. But as John Nash has reported now several times, there was a a kind of uh, not very well publicized change to UFC contracts. What, a handful of years ago, like 2017, 2018, something like that. Um, Weirdly enough, around the same time that a bunch of former fighters filed a high-profile class action lawsuit against the UFC, you started to see some kind of quiet changes made to the UFC contracts. They were offering people moving forward. And so now UFC contracts have an end date. They can't extend into perpetuity. They have to have an expiration date. And so we think Francis Ngannou's contract, even if he wins 
expires sometime next year or or the end of next year, something like that. So it, it puts Francis Ngannou in a very weird situation where if he wins and he becomes the undisputed UFC heavyweight champion, he probably has one more fight left on his deal before his deal can expire. So then it becomes a question, does he want to make a deal with the UFC and, and have that fight? Or does he just kind of want to sit out and wait for his deal to expire? Either one of those outcomes is very strange. And it, and yet it hasn't really seemed like they have made a lot of progress. I guess previous to this story from Dana White saying, hey, don't worry, we smoothed it over, which by the way, over at CAA, the organization that represents Francis Ngannou, which is also the main competitor of Endeavor that uh, owns the UFC. Do you think there's an alarm that goes off, like on the wall, like a fire alarm that goes off in Francis Ngannou's manager's office uh, when he is cited having dinner with Dana White by himself? <laughs> well, I mean, he said didn't like necessarily have dinner, just ran into him. Maybe sure, but Francis, and, Francis Ngannou's manager or agent was on, I believe, Misha Tate's podcast the week prior, talking about how he hadn't heard from the UFC since June. Right. That he normally is in contact with Hunter Campbell. He's like, I haven't heard from him since June. So, like, I don't know what's going on. So that didn't make it sound like they were close together. Francis Ngannou has come out and said if he signs another deal with the UFC, it's going to have to have a clause where he can go box. He can go do some boxing on the side, which, you know, short of Conor McGregor is not something they've really ever allowed anyone else to do before. So it would seem if we're just guessing that there are some wide gulfs to yeah. get over here between Francis Ngannou and the UFC. And the last we heard that that was still the case. And we don't know what the outcome of this great talk they had at dinner was, except that, you know, Dana White's definition of what a good talk is might be somewhat different than other people's definitions of what a good talk is. But like, you know, knowing all of this, as we sit here, even today, it's impossible to think that they would just let Francis and Ghana walk away, right? And like, if they do, then then we are fully through the rabbit hole into this whole new era of the UFC where they don't just don't even care who the fighters are, that they're just like, Francis Ngannou, arguably the heavyweight we've been waiting for this whole fucking time. We finally get him and now he's a champion. He wants a little bit too much money. He wants to go box. So we're going to wish him well in his future endeavors. It's crazy to think that that would happen. But see, that is not unthinkable to me because of where we are in this current reality. Like the, it's not at all impossible for me to imagine a scenario where the UFC does say, look, we're going to continue being the UFC and dominating this space, whether Francis Ngannou is in it or not. And, you know, maybe it would be better. Like we would sell a little more pay-per-views, have Francis Ngannou in there, but we're making so much guaranteed contractual money through these rights fee deals that we don't have to upend our entire normal contract arrangement just to keep one guy. And furthermore, the one thing we might fear is what happens if we start that avalanche and we let people see that you could get big enough in the UFC to ask for a completely different kind of contract and maybe cut into the revenue share, but also maybe just give yourself more freedom than we like to extend under a UFC contract. And then the next thing you know, everybody's asking for it as soon as they become a UFC champion. And it's a real pain in the ass. I could absolutely see a scenario where the UFC says we would so much rather not even deal with that and not even go down that road that we'd let Francis Ngannou walk and see what happens. Because I don't think they're worried that Bellator is going to lay hands on Francis Ngannou and it's going to be a huge game changer. And the next thing you know, Bellator is a, a major serious competitor that you got to worry about. 
I don't think they fear that. I think they think if he does go and box somebody, it'll probably be some thriller stuff or whatever. If he goes and he actually boxes one of the top heavyweights, he'll probably lose. And we're not that concerned about it. Like We don't see a way that it really hurts our business in the long term. I think that, that is, it is weird to think about that as a fan of the sport because you're like, for years you've been told that the whole thing of the UFC is it's where the best fight the best. Here we have this guy who seems like he is the best heavyweight in MMA right now, and you're going, eh, but if it costs too much to keep him, even though we'd still end up turning a profit on his fights, we'd just rather not do it. Yeah. Like if we, I mean, if we stand to make... You can't really make that claim anymore, right? If you're the UFC, you can't really even make the claim that you are you're the best fight the best that you've got the best in the UFC because you just if you just let the guy who is obviously the best heavyweight in the world i guess pending what happens in this serial gone fight if you just let that dude walk away like you can't you can't really make that argument anymore just because he wanted what sure you to you amounts to a few extra million they will they will continue to make that claim vociferously in fact, the fact that it will have been undermined by actions does not hamper their ability to make it. And a lot of people still believe it. So I think that that's another part of that what factors into the decision there. It's just crazy to me, especially because, as you said, Francis Ngannou has so many of the elements that you would want out of a heavyweight champion. If you were trying to sit there and build yourself a heavyweight champion that you could really promote and that would do monster pay-per-views and could put together some huge, huge fights that would be bigger than anything else you could do otherwise, Francis Ngannou is that guy. Yeah. You know? And you, yet, we also saw Francis Ngannou won the title like last spring. What was it, last March? And it's not like the UFC really put its shoulder into promoting Francis Ngannou after that. I mean, it was like, hey, we want you to turn around and fight in August. Uh, and he said, how about September? And I said, nope, no deal. Instead, we'll get to work on this interim title fight, which we will then make a video package for talking about how you're off on vacation. And, like, that's that, you know? Not, we're really on the same team here, Francis. We think that you're a big deal and we want to promote you. Just, like, we... We want you to fight if you can show up exactly when and where we say. And if you can't, there's no flexibility in that. And we're going to kind of undermine you and bury you a little bit as a champion in order to just make the next fight. And that seems to be where we are with how the UFC views all the fighters. And that as a, they're more or less interchangeable. Even a guy who seems like a, like a, a diamond plucked out of the, the rough. You, you have everything you want here. A guy with an amazing personal story. Coming as a, a a guy who comes out of the sand mines, lives homeless in Paris, becomes a champion fighter, true rags to riches tale, and oh yeah, he's got the damn death touch as a knockout artist fighter. Everything you want, the exciting fighting style. You look at the guy's Instagram; he looks he looks like he's fucking James Bond, kind of all the time. There's not like a bad picture of Francis Ngannou out there, just like dripping with swag. You have so many ways that you could promote this guy and make him a huge star, but the, the thing is, like now that the UFC just does not it seem feel like it's in that business anymore. It is in the content yeah. creation business. So what do you what do you think is actually going to happen? Well, I mean, honestly, a lot depends on who wins this fight. Because well, I think Francis Ngannou is deserves to be the favorite in this fight just because he's got that that one touch power where he didn't have to look pretty throwing punches all the time. All he got to do is just touch Cyril gone on the chin 
and you go into sleep. And Cyril Gaon, a cleaner, you know, prettier striker, doesn't have quite that one-punch power. It can put them yeah. together on you and can take you apart and can definitely knock people out, but it's not quite that same where he just needs to land one clean one and doesn't really have the wrestling ability to exploit Francis and what we had seen before as Francis Ngannou's weakness in that area, which, frankly, he seemed to have shored up a whole lot between the two Stipe Miocic fights. Uh, but it, it, these are heavyweights, man. So it's not out of the question that either one of them wins this. Uh, if Francis Ngannou loses and then doesn't want to come back to like with his tail between his legs to the UFC, then I think he takes his chances in some thriller-type boxing scenario, at least for the short-term future. Uh, if he wins, then I think the UFC has a little bit of a, a gut-check moment to see if we how serious we want to get about keeping this guy. Yeah. It probably speaks exclusively to my own abusive relationship with mixed martial arts that I that the 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 number one thing that I feel like speaks to my mind against Francis Ngannou winning this fight is that the position that he's in right now. I feel like every time we get to this point with somebody they lose their fight. Like it's it's just what happens. So we're going to have to wait and see how that uh plays out. If I'm Francis Ngannou and I get clear of the UFC at any point either January or next year or whatever the first thing that I want to do is appear in the background of a bunch of Jake Paul videos. Like <laughs> seriously, I, I don't know how I could better promote myself in the fight game than just standing there with my shirt off and my arms crossed standing behind Jake Paul, like a goddamn 1980s pro wrestling vignette where Jake Paul is playing the part of Bobby, the brain Heenan <laughs> talking about how the next thing that's going to happen is that I'm going to destroy someone in showtime. Like, that's where I want to be, right there. And you know what? It seems like Jake Paul would have the awareness to realize that that was a good idea for him, too. He'd be right there in his rhinestone jumper, tapping his temple, talking about how he, Francis Ngannou has joined the Jake Paul family. Yep. Strange bedfellows. All right, that's going to do it for round number two. We'll be right back with round number three. we had some fun on new year's with these futures odds that uh the big homie aaron bronstetter from tsn put on his twitter account i wrote an article uh kind of handicapping in some ways the heavyweight division for the next year uh but but he has has tweeted these odds from i, I believe it's uh betonline.ag the, okay. the, the website that provided these uh these futures odds for basically who will be UFC champion in each division by the end of 2022. I do want to start at heavyweight because obviously we just spent some time in the last round talking about Francis Ngannou. I wrote the story over on comainevent.com uh, about the heavyweight division and these these odds. Your your favorite right now to be the heavyweight champion at the end of 2022 is in fact Francis Ngannou at plus 225. Right after him, you got Cyril Gaon, uh, plus 275. Then you got a list that is Curtis Blade, Stipe Miocic, John Jones, Derek Lewis, Alexander Volkov, uh, Tom Aspinall, Jarzino Rosenstrike, Chris Dawkins, and Tai Tuivasa. If when you when you look at this list, first of all, tell me what you think will happen in the heavyweight division 
I know asking that question is is a fool's errand to begin with, uh, just because it's heavyweight we're talking about here. But tell me what you think will happen in the heavyweight division in 2022, and then tell me if there's any numbers on this list that you like. Well, first of all, my favorite entry of yours on this list was where it says, Alexander Volkov plus 900, to which you just write, nah. That's not happening. He's not going to be the UFC heavyweight champion at the end of 2022. Think of the dominoes that would have to fall for Alexander Volkov to wind up in a title fight that he wins sometime during the next 363 days. I mean, maybe fewer dominoes than you think would have to fall. I don't know. Also, okay, so this is heavyweight. Crazy shit has historically happened with the UFC heavyweight title. But the fact that we're looking at the one scenario where if Francis Ngannou wins, then he could sit around with the belt for a while. And then the UFC, I mean, they could create like an interim championship again, but... I'm assuming that for the purposes of our conversation here, we're not counting that. Well, they would strip him, don't you think? Like, if it became clear that he was not going to defend the title. If you strip him, then does he become a free agent right away? Like, if if you're Mm -hmm. using a champion's clause to kind of keep him? uh, That's a great question. I had not considered that. I don't. I mean, I I don't know either. We haven't 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 had a look at Francis Ngannou's actual current contract to know exactly what the situation is there. But it it might be something like that. And for the UFC's purposes, they might see it as like, why even mess with it when we could just grab another belt out of the supply closet, interim championship, boom, there you go, and uh, see if that puts any pressure on the guy to want to come back and defend the title. But if it happens where he sits around with it and nobody else gets a crack at the real thing then that could really make this discussion a whole lot less fun. Yeah, so you're just saying take Francis as a position bet either way, that he could just be sitting there cool in his heels at home with the belt on top of his television, and that could that could win you the money right there. Well, I'd want to know exactly how betonline.ag is classifying this. Like, What, what do the terms mean? What are we actually talking about here? Um, But if that's the case where it has to be the actual heavyweight championship and not an interim heavyweight strap, then Francis Ngannou as staying as champion is a pretty decent bet because if he beats Cyril Gaunt, and again, I think he should, but it's definitely not a given, then even if he has to fight one more time in 2022, who does he fight? It doesn't seem like the, the UFC is super close to making that John Jones fight. You know, I mean, that, that would be smart. That would be a huge fucking fight, but it doesn't seem like it's exactly a priority. Uh, do you try to turn around and do another Derek Lewis fight with Francis Ngannou? I mean, Derek Lewis is coming off a knockout win. He seems to find himself in that picture, not infrequently, because then I think Francis Ngannou probably wins that one too. So who, who do you think, if we're assuming that somebody has to take the belt off of Francis Ngannou, who do you think that person is most likely to be? I mean, if you're if I've, the, the 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 guiding question of whether or not you bet on Ngano is here in here is whether you think he's going to be in the UFC in 2022. Because if you do, then he's the best bet to still be the champion, right? Uh, I'll tell you what: the two numbers on there that I actually really liked were Stipe Miocic, who is plus six fifty, six fifty, and also tie to Ivasa at plus twenty five hundred. Now, Stipe, I like him. Because if you imagine this snafu where Francis Ngannou in some way either wins or loses the title 
and is stripped or holds out or leaves the UFC and suddenly we got to come up with a new vacant title fight or we got to find someone for Cyril Gaon to defend against and you start thinking, who do you put in that fight? Well, Derek Lewis has already said, don't call him for a five rounder. John Jones <laughs> has already said, like, you guys are pretty far apart in your in your uh, negotiations. All of a sudden, does this former champion who always grumbled about how he didn't get paid enough, but then when push came to shove, always signed on the line that was dotted, uh, who's been sitting around cooling his heels for a year, does he start to look more attractive to put in that vacant title fight? And then if they do, shit, man, you're a Stipe Miocic win away from cashing that bet, essentially, because he ain't fighting more than one time next year. I can guarantee you that. <laughs> it's just not Miocic's way. The other bet that I like, the two Ivasa line is crazy at plus 2,500, right? Because, like, he's not going to be the champion. But what if he did become the champion? And, like, here's the thing. Tied to Ivasa, who I already tweeted this last week, is my fighter of the year. Yeah. 3-0 and in 2021. And is it crazy to think that, like, he could win one more fight against a middling opponent during the first half of this year and then is sitting there at the end of the year with a four-fight win streak in the UFC being fun as hell and everybody loves him and he does a shooey and we're all big tie to Ivasa fans and then someone drops out of the year-end heavyweight fight with an injury? And the UFC is looking around like, who's a fun guy? Who's a marketable guy that we could stick in here against whoever is the champion? And, and Tai Tuivasa is sitting there, shoe in hand, grinning his ass off, saying, call me. Right? I mean, it, the scenario that I could see it happening in is, for one thing, where Francis Ngannou, for one reason or another, is completely out of the picture. And you're right, we go into some plan B modes and also where the UFC trying to help people forget about how they let Francis Ngannou get out of the picture in the first place, looks around and goes, would be fun. Would get people's attention. Would be a, a rock'em, sock'em, robots kind of fight we could make. And then somehow or another, this guy gets in there and gets a chance to swing them things. Right, yeah. And then he's swinging them things with your $20 you never want to see again behind him. And suddenly, uh, you got a windfall on your way. On yeah. Your way. I mean, it is, like, it's interesting how when you're trying to decide who might end up with the, the title, you have to imagine the scenario in which they might even come close to sniffing a shot. Right. And that's that, where Alexander Volkov is out of it, because, like, there's no way, man. And that itself is not necessarily even dependent on who wins all the fights, you know? It's just not. That's just not how it works right now. And so you, you, when you take that calculation in there, then okay. I, I mean, maybe geographically, he, depending on how what travel restrictions look like whenever this hypothetical last-minute title fight comes about, that he, he might, Tai Tuivasa also might have some problems there. You might want to look. That's when you might want to be like, hmm, who's your man in Cleveland who could get on a plane and be in, in Vegas by tonight? You know? Yeah. But uh, I don't know. The other thing, like, I'm not ready to call it a bad bet that with John Jones sitting at plus 650. Because, yeah. like we said, John Jones has been pretty far apart on the numbers they'd want to have to fight at for the UFC heavyweight title. But also, he's kind of pushed in his chips on that to begin with by bulking up. And spending all this time trying to become an actual physical heavyweight. So it's not like he's going to, he can just abandon that plan at any time and go back to 205. 
Also, having very recently fucked up again, John Jones is probably motivated to get back in the cage and beat somebody's ass to give some fans something else to talk about with regards to him. I'm sure that the UFC saw that as John Jones weakened his own negotiating position in that way because before people were kind of on John Jones's side, like, hey, if he's going to go up there do this big super fight with Francis Ngannou or whoever's the UFC heavyweight champion, he deserves to be paid that big money because it'd be a big fight. But after now, he's not exactly a sympathetic figure. After he gets arrested in Las Vegas and it, there's a domestic violence element to it, and even if he ends up mostly getting in trouble for headbutting a police car. I could see how both the UFC and he think, it'd be kind of in your best interest to take a fight right now. And who knows, John Jones versus Cyril Gaon for the UFC Heavyweight Championship? Maybe he goes, oh, I don't need the monster money for that one. I think I can go in there and, and beat that guy. And uh, I could I could envision a scenario where John Jones ends up as the heavyweight champion by the end of the year, and those are pretty good odds for it. All right, let's take a look at just a couple of these other divisions before we're out of time here. At light heavyweight, Yuri Prohaska is your favorite to finish 2022 as the champion. He's at plus 240. Do you like that, or is there somebody else on this list that uh, makes more sense to you? I like that. That 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 feels completely reasonable. Like I, I could talk myself into that very easily. At middleweight, your man uh, Israel Adesanya is out here at minus money to finish the year as uh, as champion. Minus 155. You got uh, Bobby Knuckles at plus 425. And then the usual suspects here, except, except Kamzat Shumayev, who is on this list at plus 1600. He is on uh, the welterweight list. At plus 500, right behind Kamaru Usman, who is also at negative money, minus 250 uh, to finish 2022 as your 170 pound champion. So he comes at is plus 500 at welterweight. Yeah, he's Man, he's I your second. He's I your second most likely guy. I could I, I could see how the UFC would want to get him into a title fight quickly, the way that they've been pushing him. And you know what? He looks pretty fucking good. I don't know. I, I could see that one. I, I think Kamar Usman would come into that fight, if, assuming like you know that's who he ended up fighting for the welterweight title. I could see him. He, he'd be a favorite, but uh, I don't know. If I had 20 bucks, I might never want to see again. I might put it on down, down that one. But the middleweight one, I mean, Israel Adesanya, it makes a whole lot of sense because it seems like the Bobby Knuckles fight is what we're doing next. Unless Robert Whitaker comes up with a completely different and much more effective game plan it's hard to see how he's going to make any things any different against Israel Asani in the second fight. Then again, I mean, he's a smart fighter. Maybe he does come up with that, but my money would be on Israel Asani there. And then if he gets past Bobby Knuckles again, who who's going to beat him this year? I have a hard time picking somebody else out. I mean, who who else is a is high on the favorites list at middleweight? Uh, Marvin Vittori, Jared Cannonier, Derek Brunson, Jack Hermanson. That's your list, and nope. I agree with you. I don't. Nope. I don't think any of those guys are. Are taken at home. Lightweight, as always, interesting. Charles Oliveira plus two hundred. Islam Mahachev plus three hundred. Then you got in order: Benil Dariush, Justin Gaethje, uh, Dustin Poirier, Conor McGregor, Michael Chandler, Rafael dos Anjos, Gregor Gillespie, uh, Rafael Fiziev on that list. I could talk myself into taking a flyer on Fiziev at that money there. Just by the end of the year, maybe someone catches a hot one there. I mean, the problem with Fazeev is talking myself into thinking he'll get a title shot in 2022. I, you know, it's lightweight, man. You're going to have to win seven more fights. 
Uh, That's true. That's true. You're telling me Benil Dariush is ahead of Justin Gaethje. Well, they're actually both plus 400, so they're the same. Okay. The same odds. Okay. But uh, Dustin Poirier plus 700, Conor McGregor plus 900. Uh, both guys who could get shots. I just think that uh, Justin Gaethje has the combination of good chance to get a title fight, and we've seen that Charles Oliveira has been known to get clipped early in a fight, and you know who can clip a motherfucker? Justin Gaethje. Yeah. Uh, men's bantamweight. All Jermaine Sterling is at plus 450. Peter Yawn minus 175 is your Ooh. overall favorite. Ooh. After that, you got... Uh, Dillashaw at plus 900 and Jose Aldo also at plus 900. Interestingly enough, Henry Cejudo at plus 900, which uh, I guess if you are either Jose Aldo or Henry or uh, TJ Dillashaw, you got to feel real good that odds makers see you as being the champion as just as likely as a dude who's not even in the sport anymore. Yeah, Uh, that's what you see that. What the fuck, man? I'm, (laughs) I'm an active fighter. He's retired. The hell? Uh, any, any of these other uh, weight classes that you wanted to talk about? Um, I guess Amanda Nunes at minus 500 and Kayla Harrison being your second most likely woman to be the UFC women's featherweight champion at plus 300 by the end of, of 2022. Like, that's not even that long of odds on Kayla Harrison at yeah. plus 300. Yeah, it's not. Um, yeah, I don't. What's the, uh, what does the UFC women's bantamweight one look like, though? Amanda Nunes minus one fifteen, Juliana Pena plus two hundred. Okay, I mean Amanda Nunes minus one fifteen. Even though it's not exactly great odds, I feel like chances are pretty good she ends up as champion at the end of twenty twenty two at one thirty five. I agree with you, and I also think if you are either Aljamain Sterling or Juliana Pena, and you're looking at this plus money on yourself, you're sort of like, you guys know I do have the belt right now. Yeah, right, like in my possession. Got it in my house. I'm looking at it. I'm looking. I'm looking at these odds, and I'm looking up at the belt, and I'm looking back at the odds. That's where I need Jake Paul as my Bobby the Brain Heenan style manager, waggling his finger in the camera, mm-hmm. talking about the disrespect. While you stand behind him with a towel draped over your shoulder, ostentatiously chewing gum. Exactly right. Hundred yeah. percent right. All right, let's do just saying stuff, and then we will get out of here for this week. Ben, bad news in the world of Mark Hunt this week. <sighs> Uh, his lawsuit against the UFC seems to be dead in the water. And in addition to that, he has been ordered to pay $388,000 in the UFC's uh, legal fees for them. So, of course, as you know, like you do, if you are a former professional fighter who has recently lost a high-profile legal battle against the UFC, the thing to do is jump on your social media and challenge Dana White and Lorenzo Fertitta to a literal fight. Yeah. I guess this week, I'm just saying it somehow seems more plausible when Jake Paul does it. I don't, I'm not sure, Mark. (laughs) I don't know, man. Man, I mean, if you're Dana White or the Fertitas, you're anybody in the UFC management, you have the a standing order with security. Like, if you see a giant-ass dude with, like, a neck tattoo, don't let him get close. And yeah. there should be a picture of Mark Hunt on the wall. Like, And if you are a UFC security guard, you're like, how much are you paying me again? <laughs> like what is what's my salary for putting my body in between your body and Mark Hunt's body again? Uh, you want to go taser? 
in that situation. You know? Like, that would work. <laughs> it's just going to make Mark Hunt mad if you tase him, man. Yeah, at least give you time to run away while he has to pause and pull it out of his chest or something. I guess. What is your just saying stuff this week? Well, Chad, I'm going to read you. Uh, this is a, a headline by Kareem Zidane over on Bloody Elbow. Fighter barred from Czech MMA organization due to Hitler tattoo. Radek Rusal, nailed it, I'm pretty sure, uh, apparently has a portrait of Adolf Hitler on his arm. Uh, also has a second tattoo on his chest, quote, revealed a skull wearing an SS cap, a reference to the SS Totenkopfverbände unit responsible for administering the Nazi death camps. I'm just saying, Jed, you know, who'd have thought that your Hitler tattoo would backfire and cause some yeah. employment problems? Just, that's got to be a real shock, you know? You go in there, you get your Hitler tattoo prominently displayed there on your arm, uh, a second SS tattoo on your chest. You enter a line of work that requires you to do your job while stripped to the waist. And you think, this should be fine. I don't think they'll, I'll face any blowback for this at all. People would be pretty cool with that. Plus, if I get a portrait of Adolf Hitler tattooed on my arm, what are the odds people are even going to recognize him? You know, they, they'll probably, they might think it's Charlie Chaplin. I'm just yeah. saying. I mean, I what, guess what at a, least he's being upfront about it, right? What, what, a, what a bummer it's got to be to find out that there were actually some negative consequences to your Adolf Hitler tattoo. Just yeah. saying. Oof. Just saying. All right, that's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. Uh, we'll be back all week at the Patreon page, Wednesday live chat, Thursday doing the damn thing, Friday power hour. Check us out over there, and we'll be back one week from today with another episode of The Proper. Meet us back here, same time, same place. As for right now, though, we are done, we are through, we are out. See, this is why if I'm going to go get somebody's portrait tattooed on my arm i'm gonna go with somebody like a nelson albrain because because nobody's gonna know who that is yeah for starters and if, if you do know who he is you probably don't know what he looks like and if you do know who he is and you know what he looks like then chances are you're probably a fan so not gonna be a problem yeah you are making a great case right now that a nelson albrain portrait tattoo would be lower stakes than a adolf hitler mm-hmm. i just think a, when you compare the two I think it's worth the question.